Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk okay, Herbstreet is on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Podcast. We. September 13th, 2021, people. Hope everybody had a great weekend enjoying another loaded slate of college football, right? It's funny. Every time that everybody tells me, oh, this this football slate stinks. This isn't a bunch of good. We don't have any good games this weekend. We get insanity in the college football streets. That is exactly what we got on Saturday as Oregon steamrolls Ohio State at the horseshoe. Another mega win for the Pac-12. We talk about that, what it means for Ohio State. From there, we will transition Texas, definitely not back. Yes, I'm the thousandth person to use that joke. They get crushed by Arkansas. What does it mean for Texas? Another great win for Sam Pittman and the Hogs. Take a quick break, and we'll from there wrap up, I guess, the the rest of the weekend that was uh, Clay Helton. Clay Helton, his time is ticking there at USC. The Florida State finish, I actually thought Michigan looked good. Iowa, Iowa State. We'll get to all the little stuff at the end. But I do want to start with what is the topic of the day, which is this. As I said a minute ago, the Texas Longhorns might not be back. But you know who is? The Pac-12. The Pac-12 is back, baby. The Pac-12 is back after a second straight week where this conference picks up a signature win. Last week, it was UCLA taking on LSU at the Rose Bowl and beating them. This week, Oregon going to the horseshoe and beating Ohio State 35-28. Second straight week, the Pac-12 has a signature win. And I think there's no doubt that this one is even bigger and more impressive than what UCLA did last week against LSU. No disrespect to Chip Kelly, no disrespect to Zach Charbonnet, no disrespect to the Bruins who listen to this podcast, but this one is bigger because you go on the road one, you go to a place where no team had won since 2017, but then also it is a, a, a win that will resonate probably all season long. Even if this isn't a vintage Ohio State team, we know that Ohio State is a really good football program. I don't know that we're totally sold on LSU yet. So again, just a signature, signature, signature win for Oregon for the Pac-12. And when you break it down and when you get into the game itself, I think the single most shocking thing about this game is the same thing that was the single most shocking game about UCLA-LSU last week. 
UCLA physically did whatever they wanted against LSU. And on Saturday, Oregon physically did whatever they wanted against, uh, against Ohio State. The box score might not totally indicate it. In theory, Ohio State actually outgained Oregon. But if you watch the game, you know it's no secret. Oregon dominated Ohio State. First of all, there was the stat sheet where they got up early and they were basically playing ahead from the whole game, Ohio State playing behind from the whole game. And then there are the actual stats where Oregon, check this out, averaged 7.1 yards per carry. Seven yards per carry against a Ohio State defense that has a bunch of five stars, a bunch of future NFL players, and Oregon just absolutely manhandled them. Now, we'll get to Ohio State in a minute, but to me, that is the single most shocking thing that came out of Saturday's game at the Horseshoe with Ohio State and Oregon is that Oregon was just the more impressive team, right? There was nothing fluky about that win. There was no tip this. There was no uh, bad referees call. There was no targeting call that ejected a key player. Oregon was the physically imposing team. They were the faster team. They were the more athletic team. It's worth noting that they did it without two key defensive players, by the way. How about this? The potential number one pick in next year's draft, Kayvon Thibodeau, did not play for Oregon. And also Justin Flo, a former five-star linebacker who actually led the team with 14 tackles. He'll probably be a first-round pick in 2023. So not this upcoming draft, but the next one. He was not available. Ohio State's best line linebacker on the field Noah Sewell got hurt and they still won and I think that to me more than anything was the single biggest shock of the game is how Oregon physically dominated Ohio State and they just look like the more complete better football team right uh, Ohio State has lost games in the past uh, even under Urban Meyer they had these weird fluky bizarre losses they lost to Purdue one year they lost to Iowa one year but it was more self-inflicted than it was the fact that they just looked like the inferior team Urban Meyer dating back to when he took over he built this entire program on speed athleticism. That is how Urban Meyer built this program. Remember, we had Josh Perry on this podcast a few weeks ago, and he said point blank, Urban Meyer told me when I got to Ohio State, because he was recruited by Jim Tressel, Urban Meyer told me he wanted to recruit me. He didn't think I was good enough, fast enough, athletic enough. So that tells you how Urban Meyer built this football program. And I bring it back to Saturday because that is the first time. If you take out the national championship game against Alabama where there was COVID issues and guys missing the game, that was the first time that I can ever remember Ohio State in the kind of Urban Meyer, Ryan Day era, just looking like the inferior team physically, athletically. Oregon basically did whatever they want. Up front, they physically dominated Ohio State. Their athletes on the edge looked just as good, if not better, than the guys Ohio State did. And it goes without saying, uh, Joe Moorhead coached a heck of a game as a guy, a uh, former Mississippi State head coach, is now the Oregon offensive coordinator. He just did whatever he wanted against Ohio State, including basically scoring three touchdowns on the same outside run that Ohio State had no answers for. So when you look at the fact that Oregon physically dominated, they were more athletic and they were out I mean you can't put together a better performance in terms of just just uh, you know who you are who you're playing and what it means and so as we transition to the big picture here this game is just so big 
for the Pac-12 and so big for Oregon, right? It's funny because last week I discussed a little bit about how sometimes the more interesting story is in the losing locker room. Last week with UCLA and LSU with what was at stake for Coach O, I believe that the bigger storyline was in the losing locker room. Same with Clemson, who was then out of potentially a college football playoff picture or certainly behind the eight ball. But when I look at this game, the bigger story is actually in the winning locker room this time, and it is Oregon, and it is the Pac-12, and what it, it is what this win means specifically for this conference. Because when you look at the Pac-12, when you look at their struggles, when you look at why they are perceived to be an inferior conference and an inferior football product, there's two distinct reasons why. One, they just don't win enough big out-of-conference games. And I no longer kind of include the bowl games in there because bowl games are now weird. Uh, you know, some teams try hard, some teams don't. Guys opt out. So, yeah, Oregon beat Wisconsin in the Rose Bowl a few years ago, but it's not the same as going to the horseshoe. And this was one of the big problems that the Pac-12 has had over the last couple years is that in those big marquee out-of-conference games, whether it was Oregon playing Auburn a few years ago, Washington has, has been a good program but hasn't gotten those signature wins out of conference. USC, of course, we know they struggle. UCLA up until this year has struggled in big out-of-conference games. You start to look across the board, they don't have those signature out-of-conference wins, so when it comes time to start talking about best teams, talk about playoff, it's hard to bring the Pac-12 into that conversation because even when they have a good team, like two years ago, Oregon is 11-2, and two, I think, at the end of the year, but they have a loss to, to Auburn. On the flip side, that year, if you remember, Utah was really good. Utah didn't have any signature wins going into the Pac-12 championship game. So I'm getting off subject here, but there's two reasons the Pac-12 has fallen behind the eight ball. They don't have those signature wins out of conference, and more significantly, they also have this, this, this perception that it's a finesse league, that it's it's about, you know, the quarterbacks and the white, but they can't get in the they can't get in the trenches and compete with the best of the best in the SEC and the Big Ten and the elite programs in college football. Well, after the last two weeks, you can't really debate that, right? Like, like, like LSU, again, we'll figure out how good LSU is and, and how, what that UCLA win means. But when Ohio State at home faces Oregon and Oregon is the definitive best team, there is no arguing that Oregon matters, that Oregon is relevant, and that this is a mega win. And so when I look at the totality of what it means for yesterday in the bigger picture, it's just so big for the Pac-12. One in the micro, you have obviously, uh, uh, you know, you have the head-to-head -head win over Ohio State where if Ohio State continues to win and continues to have success and Oregon does the same, obviously Oregon will have the trump card with the head-to-head -head win. Oregon, of course, if they finish 12-1 and and Ohio State finishes 12-1, and there's no debate at that point who is deserving of a college football playoff berth. And heck, if somebody like UCLA beats Oregon and Oregon, of course, has that win over Ohio State, that is great news, assuming, of course, that Ohio Ohio State continues to have success and that Oregon does the same. That's the micro, though. I think in the bigger picture, it's even more than that because it's not just that Oregon went on the road. It's not just that they got the signature victory. It's, again, how they did it, okay? It is the fact that they went to the horseshoe, a place where nobody had won since 2017 when Baker Mayfield planted the flag, Oklahoma gets the victory at the horseshoe. It is the fact that they were the physically more impressive team, and I know I keep saying that bit, but it is so important just because as we go through this season, that win will continue to resonate. I don't know how good Ohio State is going to be. I don't think they're bad, but I bring it up because if they continue to win, 
We all watched that game, and there is no debate who the more impressive team was. This is just such a different win for Oregon than if they had gone to, I don't know, Michigan State and gotten a win, Northwestern and gotten a win, Michigan and gotten a win, even Penn State. We would have sat there, we would have said, yeah, they got the win, but yeah, how good is I? How good is Michigan State? How good is Northwestern? How good is Nebraska? We, it, it, it just feels so different because it was Ohio State. Now, I know I'm talking a lot of big picture, and we got to stay in the small picture. Oregon has to continue to win. They do play Stony Brook this week. I would hope that they would take care of business against them. Then they have Arizona at Stanford versus Cal. Should be three wins. Very interestingly, could be 6-0 and heading into their October 23rd game. You know who they play then? They play at UCLA. So for the, the Bruins fans listening, go get your tickets now. They are going to be a hot commodity. But I'll tell you this, if UCLA does what it's supposed to do and Oregon does what it's supposed to do, uh, we could be looking at maybe the most important regular season Pac-12 game. I think, frankly, of the college football playoff era. I put this out on Twitter, and it's hard to think of if, if, Ohio, if Oregon and UCLA continue to win and they are undefeated on October 23rd, that would probably be the biggest game in Pac-12 football in the regular season since Jim Harbaugh was at Stanford and Chip Kelly was at Michigan. That is how big that game could be because we just haven't had two teams that were this good potentially this late in the season. That is getting down the road, but I'm just telling you, great day for the Pac-12, great day for Oregon, and I'm telling you, I, I don't know how you can watch that game and not feel like Oregon physically matches up with just about anybody in college football, maybe a step behind Alabama or Georgia. But I think when you're talking about the top teams in college football, Oregon's got to be number three after Saturday. All right, let's switch gears and talk about the other side of this game, and that is, of course, the Ohio State side. And as I just said a minute ago, sometimes the more interesting side of things is in the losing locker room. I don't know that I believe the more interesting side in this game is in the losing locker room. I think it's actually Oregon in the Pac-12 and what this win means for them. But what happened at Ohio State is not nothing either. And it needs to be discussed and it needs to be broken down because there are some trends that I'm starting to see that are worrying me a little bit. And, and in the smaller picture, look, I, I don't want to overreact, right? Like, like for any of you that are sitting out there saying, Torres, take a chill pill, relax. First of all, I don't know if people still say take a chill pill. But if they do, like I, I get where you're coming from. It's not as though Ohio State has never lost a football game before. It has happened, and I think the program's doing all right just fine despite a loss here or there over the last 100 years. There have been years where they lost a game and made the Big Ten championship game, won the Big Ten, lost in the regular season and made the college football playoff, even lost in the regular season and won the college football playoff in 2014. So it's not as though uh, Ohio State has never taken a loss this time of year and rallied to come back. What I do think is also indisputable, though, is that there really are some kind of disturbing trends if you're an Ohio State fan that are starting to develop. It wasn't just Saturday. It wasn't just even this season. But dating back to last year, there are some things going on in that program that I don't know how you can be comfortable if you're an Ohio State fan. First of all, just in the micro of Saturday, it really goes back to what I said a minute ago. I can't ever remember outside of last year against Alabama in the national championship game an Ohio State team just looking like the inferior team on the field physically and athletically. Oregon, yes, the stats speak for themselves. Seven yards per rush, which is a stunning stat that I could have never imagined. But beyond that, it was just how it looked when you watched. Oregon was faster. Oregon was more athletic. They were stronger up front. Their offensive line bullied 
Ohio State's defensive line. And I don't know how you can't sit there if you're an Ohio State fan and have a, a kind of a, a come-to-Jesus moment where, where Oregon was just the better team. And I know I just talked about it with Oregon, but it's worth repeating here. There are games where good teams lose and weird stuff happens. There's a fluky call. There's a, there's a bad targeting penalty. There, you can go into a million different things. There was nothing fluky about what Oregon did on Saturday, and that in and of itself has to be concerning to an Ohio State fan. But to take it a step further, it is kind of a metaphor for what has happened really over the last year or so dating back to last season. Now, obviously, look, we know what happened with the Big Ten last season. Weird year. They start late. COVID games canceled. Games this, games that. But let me just take you to the last five games for Ohio State dating back to last season. And I want to see if you guys notice a trend, okay? Start the year off really well. Dominate Penn State. Take care of Indiana at home. Get to the Big Ten Championship game. What happens to the Big Ten Championship game? Well, they beat Northwestern. They beat them 22-10. to 10, But if you watch the game, they were down 10-7 to 7 at halftime. Rallied, beat Northwestern, win the Big Ten, make the college football playoff. Okay, so that's one. Then they make the college football playoff. To their credit, take care of Clemson. Although I will say they obviously had some major bulletin board material. If you remember, Dabo voted Clemson number one or whatever. They voted Ohio State number 10. And he basically said, like, yeah, they don't deserve to be here. They didn't play any regular season games. Why are we? Like, like, so there was real bulletin board material coming into that game. This off the Big Ten championship game where they were trailing against Northwestern at halftime. Get to the national championship game, get destroyed by Alabama. Okay, Alabama may be historically great. We'll see what happens. I don't. Well, let's not take too much from that game. Then there's this year. With a game against Minnesota to open the season, yes, you win, but you're actually trailing in the third quarter. Physically, Minnesota seems to be in the trenches, able to move the ball on you. I'm not going to compare it to Oregon, but Mo Ibrahim was awesome. He gets hurt. You kind of pull away, not coincidentally, when Minnesota's best skill position player gets hurt. And then there was Saturday where they got absolutely dominated by Oregon. And so again, let's just look at the big picture of those five games. Do you notice a trend in those five games? Against Northwestern, trailed at halftime, came back to win. Take care of Clemson, get destroyed by Alabama. Minnesota, third quarter, they are trailing. And against Oregon, they just get completely dominated. Because if you don't notice a trend, I notice one. That is that Ohio State is not taking care of anybody the way that they used to, let alone that the teams that they're supposed to. And that's not a knock on Oregon, who I think might be the third best team in the country behind Alabama and Georgia. But it is instead a, a reality that Ohio State is not dominating teams the way that they used to. And to take it a step further, it appears as though there is one specific element on this team that is really starting to concern some people around Ohio State and something that concerns me to the point that I don't know if they're going to get better and rip off a bunch of wins and have a ton of success and win the Big Ten. That concern, their defense isn't very good. And if you go back to two years ago when they went 14-0, uh, go what were they, thir they must have been 13-0, they win the Big Ten, they go to the college football playoff, they lose to Clemson in that thrill in the Fiesta Bowl. They had a great defense that year. Jeff Halfley, their coordinator, leaves. He gets the head coaching job at Boston College. Boston College is looking like it is trending in the right direction. They then promote from within a guy named Kerry Coombs to the defensive coordinator position. And to be clear, I don't claim to be an X's and O's savant, okay? I don't claim to know what Ohio State did wrong and if they matched up this way and if the safety blitzed from here. Like, that's not who I am and that's not what I'm about. What I can tell you, though, is there is a pretty direct correlation between when Jeff Halfley left and the defense taking an absolute nosedive once he was gone. This isn't a new thing this year. It really does actually date back to last year. 
because when you look back at last year, it's easy to kind of just remember Ohio State wins the Big Ten, makes the college football playoff. That defense was not very good last year. Specifically, they were not good against the pass, 122nd nationally against the pass, 59, 59th nationally in total defense. And part of that was, of course, look, you play Clemson, you play Alabama, you play fewer games, you start to look at it and you say, well, you know, is it, is it, it, are the stats that bad or did you just play really good teams? Well, it's worth noting that they did give up 35 points to Indiana in a game where Indiana in that game had almost 500 yards of total offense and almost 500 yards of passing. Then you beat Clemson, then you beat Alabama. And then this year, after last year, where you were 122nd in passing defense and 59th in total defense. You know where Ohio State ranks right now nationally? And again, I know they've played some really good teams. I know they've played some really good teams. I'm not trying to discredit the fact that they have probably played the, of through two weeks. I don't think anybody has played tougher competition than Ohio State. But at the same time, you know where Ohio State ranks right now? They rank 112th nationally in total defense. They are right now behind New Mexico State, Kent State, Washington State, Oregon State, Bowling Green, Miami of Ohio, Northern, Northern, like you go on and on down. They're behind a lot of teams right now defensively. And I understand they played Oregon. I understand they played Minnesota. I understand that maybe Oregon's the second or third best team in the country. 112th in total defense if you're at Ohio State with the resources you have, with the facilities that you have, with the amount that you pay your coaching staff, that's unacceptable. And then, oh, by the way, rush defense specifically, 122nd nationally. They are giving up over 5.3 yards per rush, which means that if the other team just lines up and runs the ball straight at Ohio State, they are getting de- second, they are getting first downs by the third play of the drive. And so when I look at Ohio State, I don't claim to have all the answers. And I don't claim, by the way, again, to say that, like, oh, this is it's all falling apart, the kingdom is crumbling, fire right. Like, no, that's not what this is about. But at some point, you do notice a trend, and you do realize something ain't right here. And so what I think is going to be interesting from the Ohio State perspective is how do they adjust, how do they get better specifically on the defensive side of the ball? Because, again, I don't claim to be the X's and O's guru, but when Oregon runs the same play three times for a touchdown and when you give up 35 points in this game, 31 points against Minnesota, I'm just telling you, it is clear that something is not right. The good news for Ohio State, the schedule does loosen up. Their next four. Tulsa at home, Akron at home, at Rutgers, at Maryland. So they have time to get right before the meat of their schedule where they'll play Penn State. Obviously, you know, Michigan looks half decent this year. I don't think anybody actually expects Michigan to win. But the point is, look, at Ohio State, it's national championship or bust. I mean, Ryan Day said before the season, we expect to win every single game that we play. And there's still a very good chance that they will win every single game that they play the rest of the regular season into the postseason. But man, oh man. Do they have some problems right now? All right, this is what I want to do. Take a quick break. Great opening segment to the show. Are you Can you tell that I'm fired up? Can you tell that I am thrilled that we have football back? Football is back. I do want to come back and talk about a couple different things from Saturday. Next, we will get to Texas and Arkansas. Texas. Texas is not back. Not back. Then we'll get to some USC, some Michigan, uh, all the good stuff that came from this weekend. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. And I'll say this. Ohio State, Oregon, probably the single biggest result. The single most entertaining result from Saturday, though, I don't think there's any debate. 
It was Texas and Arkansas down there in Reynolds Stadium in Fayetteville. Final score, Arkansas 40, Texas 21. And let me be the first person to just say this. No, Texas is not back. Okay, I'm the 5,000th person to say it, but it was incredible to watch this game. It was incredible to see the reaction to this game because I kind of knew how people felt about Texas coming in. I don't think I realized the vitriol and how much hatred and how hysterical it is to watch Texas get embarrassed on a national scale until I actually watched this game. And I'll also say this, by the way, I I need to give myself a little slap on the wrist here because uh, I'm going to bring back the segment where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong here in the next couple days, probably on Wednesday's episode. Uh, Yeah, I was uh, way, 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 way wrong on Texas. I said coming out of week one, I thought they were one of the more surprisingly impressive teams. Maybe Louisiana just stinks because Texas was absolutely embarrassed on Saturday. And I don't want to spend too much time actually breaking down the game because it's more fun to talk about the storylines outside of the game. But in terms of the game itself, uh, Arkansas was completely dominant. Final score was 40-21. to 21. Really wasn't even that close relative to the final score. Arkansas almost 500 yards of total offense, 333 yards rushing. Like Oregon, over 7 yards per carry. Uh, Yeah, it was just a butt whipping of epic proportions. And we'll talk about the Arkansas side of this in a a minute because Sam Pittman is absolutely incredible. But from the Texas side, I mean, welcome to the SEC Texas. That was another thing. We all did it. But as I said uh, on Twitter on Saturday night, I think Texas might have to ask for an invite back to the Big 12 after that because it was an absolute butt kicking. But to me, it wasn't just like like it wasn't just the idea that Texas lost this game, and it was just the idea that Arkansas won. I don't want to break down the actual result because I don't think it matters in the big picture. I don't talk about teams that are going to be four or five lost teams, which is what I think Texas is going to be. But the reaction to Texas losing to me was absolutely hysterical because, like I said, I know Texas's reputation. I know uh, the vitriol they create in some fan bases. I don't think that I realized how much college football unites around Texas not only losing, but embarrassing itself on the national stage. And what I will say is, I understand why that is the case. And I understand it maybe more now than I ever have. Texas is a pain in the butt to deal with. And they carry themselves as if they are this incredible God's gift to college football. And there's just nothing to reflect that they're actually as good as their arrogance would indicate. And by the way, Texas fans, if you're listening, I'm sorry. It's the truth. It's how we all feel about you. And so I look at Saturday... And I see the reaction of Arkansas fans, of A&M fans, of Bama fans. of like Everybody just got a kick out of watching Texas get their butt kicked. And I think it's good reason. By the way, you know who else got a kick out of it? Everybody that's left in the Big 12. Oh, you want to leave us? Good luck in the SEC. And that was the reaction. And so when I saw the reaction, I kind of went back and I, I was like, okay, why do people feel this way? And it's because exactly what I said. There is an arrogance level to Texas that just doesn't match the outcome on the field. You look at Texas over uh, really the last 15 years. First of all, never forget, they tried to break up the Big 12 about 10 years ago. Uh, they, They think they're too good for the Big 12 10 years ago. They get in the Longhorn Network, so they decide to stay. And you'd think, you feel like you're so important that you can just leave. You feel like you're so important that you deserve your own network. You think you'd have some success on the actual football field, and instead it was the exact opposite. Texas has been awful. I don't think people realize how bad Texas is. Like, like we do the joke of Texas back. What about this? Da, 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 da. Texas has been bad over the last decade, okay? Texas won their last Big 12 title in 2009. 
2009, okay? Uh, just for some perspective, we crushed USC and Clay Helton. Clay Helton won a Pac-12 title since then. Uh, we crush all sorts of schools. All sorts of schools have had success. Jim Harbaugh has had three 10-win seasons since then. Um, but when I look at, at Texas, zero, zero Pac-12 titles since 2009. In that span, you know who's won, or zero Big 12 titles, I should say, since 2009. You know who's won a Big 12 title since then? Kansas State has won a Big 12 title since Texas won a Big 12. Baylor has won the Big 12 since Texas won the Big 12. TCU has won a Big 12 title since the Big 12 since since Texas last won the Big 12. You know who else has two? Oklahoma has won seven outright Big 12 titles since the last time Texas won one and eight overall. So like when you talk about the pantheon of arrogant programs, like there are some programs that are arrogant and it's justified. Like you could criticize Ohio State and I know we just talked a little bit about it. But, like, they basically win the Big Ten every year. If they're arrogant, it's for a reason. They're better than everybody they play. Maybe they get to the college football playoff. Maybe they finally meet their match. But, like, at least they go 12-0 and every regular season. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of who else. Uh, you know, um, Alabama's arrogant. But guess what? Alabama wins every freaking game by 40. I'd be arrogant, too, if I was an Alabama fan. But Texas, you haven't won Jack you-know-what in basically forever. And that's the amazing thing about Texas is I think we all think that they have this incredible history. And again, that's where the arrogance comes from. But it was funny. I was talking about it on my radio show on Saturday night. Um, like, like, I'll just give you an example, right? Like Nebraska. We all make fun of Nebraska and like, how do they think they should be relevant on the national scale in college football? Well, like Nebraska, I understand they have some real limitations, and I understand, frankly, the Big 12 or the Big 10 hasn't been a good fit, probably should have stayed in the Big 12, left the Big 12 because of Texas. But Nebraska has won three national championships in the last 30 years, okay? Like, it's not as though Nebraska at any point in recent history has not been relevant. Now, they haven't been good in a long time, but three national championships in the 90s is not a million years ago. There are people in their 30s and 40s that remember Nebraska being like a national power. Um, but Texas, they had the one national title with Vince Young. And before that, you know, the last time they won a national title before that, 1971, 1971, which means that basically nobody that listens to this podcast really remembers a time where Texas was truly like a truly, truly, truly nationally relevant program. Now, maybe you're a little bit older. Maybe we have people that were born in the forties or fifties that listen to this show and to Texas's credit. They did win three from 63 to 70. That was a long time ago, though. So for people in their 60s and 70s that do remember, shout out to you. The rest of us in the 21st century don't really remember much of Texas. Last thing I'll say on Texas, I was thinking about this. If, you, if they were in the SEC this year, where would they rank? Because I'll tell you, they, they wouldn't have been very good. And I think that was obviously why so many people got such a kick out of Texas getting destroyed by Arkansas because with no disrespect to Arkansas, they are far from the best team in the SEC and they boat race Texas, okay? And obviously I know there's a lot of Southwest Conference ties from the old days and so Arkansas fans truly enjoyed this one and you should and we're going to get to Arkansas in a minute. But when I look at Texas, if they were in the SEC now, where would they be? I came up with a list, okay? Don't think they're better than Alabama. I think we can all establish that. Certainly not better than Georgia. Certainly not better than Oklahoma who will join them. So in a 16-team SEC, that's already three teams right there. They're certainly not better than Arkansas, because Arkansas just destroyed them. I certainly don't think they're better than Florida. I have questions about Florida going into the Alabama game this weekend, but they're not better than Florida. That's five teams right there. Bama, Georgia, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Florida. Don't think they're better than Ole Miss. 
which just absolutely destroyed Louisville the other day. They look awesome under Lane Kiffin. And I'll tell you, I don't think they're better than Kentucky, who took care of business against Missouri, was dominating, kind of let Missouri back in the game, couple fumbles on the goal line, whatever. Uh, Kentucky put up 500 yards of offense against Missouri the other day. So to me, I think you're talking about Bama, Georgia, Oklahoma, which is going to join them. Arkansas, that's four. Florida's five. Ole Miss is six. Kentucky, seven. And I'll just tell you, I, I, I don't think the list necessarily ends there. I mean, Mississippi State pretty – oh, I forgot about Texas A&M. What am I doing? Texas A&M is obviously better than them. So that's eight – what is that? Eight or nine teams right there. I'm losing track here. Bama, Georgia, Oklahoma, A&M, that's four. Arkansas is five for sure. Florida, Ole Miss, Kentucky, that's nine teams. That's nine teams, and I did not include Mississippi State, which is 2-0. and And I did not include LSU, which may eventually rally. So we're talking about in a best-case scenario right now, Texas being the 10th best team in the SEC. Shout-out to the Horns. Horns down. Hook them horns. What a day. What a day for college football. I don't think I've ever seen the reaction that I have seen from fans to Texas doing what Texas did yesterday. With that said, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least talk a little bit about Arkansas. Can't always be talking about the losing Texas Longhorns. I can't beat nobody. We got to talk about these Arkansas Razorbacks because just another awesome effort from them and just another testament to just, like, Sam Pittman's unbelievable, okay? And I know I talked about Arkansas a lot last year on this podcast, but this was a team coming into last year that was on an 18-game SEC losing streak. They did not win a single SEC game in 2018-2019, hire Sam Pittman going up against an all-SEC schedule. Remember, there were no SEC games, or there were no non-conference games at all last year for the SEC. All-SEC schedule. They get Georgia and Florida added to their schedule, and they somehow managed to go 3-3, three and three, win their first SEC game in two years, and was actually a, a wildly successful season. And I, I take back what I just said. They went 3-7 and seven overall, but started the year 3-3. Three and three. And again, it is just a testament. This guy, Sam Pittman, the pit boss, okay? I have I, I don't know that I've ever seen a rebuild go quite like this with a guy quite like Sam Pittman. And when it went, you know, when I look at what happened Saturday, I really do think you do have to go back to last season. Uh, you have to go back to what Sam Pittman inherited when he got to Arkansas. As I said, this was a team that had lost 18 straight SEC games coming in to last season when he took the job. This was a team that went 0-8 in the SEC, 2-10 overall in 2019. 0-8 in the SEC, 2-10 overall in 2018. 1-7 in the SEC in 2017. And so you're talking about a program that had gone, what is that? 1 and, what is that? I'm doing math in my head and you know I'm not a math guy. 1-23 and in the previous three seasons in the SEC when Sam Pittman got there. But what I loved about Sam Pittman, first of all, remember, when Sam Pittman got the job, he wasn't the first choice, okay? Arkansas did the thing where they went through all the candidates that they should have gone through. I'm not criticizing them. For a minute, they thought they got Lane Kiffin, and instead they end up with this guy, Sam Pittman, the offensive line coach from Georgia. He had been at Arkansas previously, had been there under Brett Bielema, but he loved Arkansas, and what I loved about Sam Pittman when he took the job was this. He established right away, I don't care if I was the first choice, the 10th choice, the 100th choice, this is the job I want. It's really funny, I'll, I'll use a basketball analogy here, but I talked to Mick Cronin about this, and um, you know, when Mick Cronin got the UCLA job, he was very publicly 
not UCLA's first choice. And he said, you know what? I wasn't my wife's first choice either, but she loves me just the same. And that was kind of Sam Pittman's approach when he got to Arkansas. And I thought it was so important that he that he had that approach and that he was the guy that ultimately got the job. I'm not going to say I liked the hire. I thought the hire was awful. I'll readily admit it. But when he came in, what he said right away was, this is the job that I want. This is, the, this is to me, a dream job. And I know that sometimes coaches say that, like my buddy Randy Etzel, he said it when he got the job at Maryland a few years ago. I know coaches say that all the time, but with Sam Pittman, you could feel like this really was his dream. Had never been a head coach at the FBS level. Had been in Arkansas when they had success. And he came in and said, look, this isn't a stepping stone job for me. This isn't a job for me because I wanted this job but ended up with that job. This isn't a job for me because I just want to say I'm an SEC head coach and then do something else. He said, like, this is, this is, like, this is it for me. I, I don't have any aspirations beyond being the head coach at Arkansas. I want to be here. This is where I want to be. This is where I want to retire. He actually did a pretty funny interview at some point last year where he basically said, you know, I'm the worst negotiator ever. My agent must hate me because I plan on retiring at this job. I hope they give me a couple raises along the way. But, you know, this is not me leveraging Arkansas to get another job. And I thought that attitude was so important for that program at that time and those players in the locker room. Because it's not as though Arkansas has the worst players on the planet. Um, You know, you look at the recruiting rankings. I don't know where they rank. It's not Alabama or Georgia. But they got just as many dudes as, uh, you know, they got more dudes, I should say, than Vanderbilt. They got just as many dudes as Ole Miss. They got just as many dudes as Mississippi State. And you look at that roster, and it shouldn't have been as bad as it was, but it was as bad. And they just needed a guy to come in and wrap their arms around him and say, you know what, I want to be here. I believe in you guys. We are going to do this together. And so it takes off last year. They lose the first game. But even in the first game, you could see they played Georgia in the opener. And I remember tweeting it, and I got crushed on Twitter like I always do. Oh, Torres, he's overreacting. And, it, and I was like, this team looks completely different. They're playing hard. They're playing tough. They're playing physical. And they ended up losing to Georgia. But it was pretty close. It was like a 9-3 score at halftime or a 9-6 score at halftime, something like that. I can't totally remember. And then from there, the next week, they go out and beat Mississippi State. First SEC win in, you know, three years at that point. And at, after that, as I said, they started 3-3 three and three last year in an SEC-only schedule. This was a team that had won one SEC game in the previous three years. They win three of their first six last year. And, oh, by the way, they easily could have won more. Uh, should have beaten Auburn. Probably should have beaten LSU. Those two games went the other way. So they easily could have been 5-5 five and five in year one under Sam Pittman in the all-SEC schedule. And I was like, this guy is incredible. I love everything about this guy and how he's doing it. But even coming into this year, I'll be honest, I doubted the pit boss again. Shame on me. Because I looked at Arkansas. I said, look, really good year last year. I get it, right? First of all, you're not sneaking up on anybody. Second of all, you have a brutal schedule. And Arkansas has, I believe, the toughest schedule in college football this year. I think Sam Pittman may have even said the toughest schedule in college football history at SEC Media Days. I can't totally remember that. Um, But I bring it up because with Sam Pittman, uh, you look at the schedule and you say, I believe in this guy, but what is the ceiling for this team? Because the schedule, this is the schedule. They got Texas at home this week. They got Texas A&M on a neutral field in a couple weeks. And then, oh, by the way, how about this for a schedule from there? They have Alabama on the road. They have Georgia on the road. They have Mississippi, Ole Miss, excuse me, on the road. They have LSU on the road. That is three top 20 teams. 
including two top two teams. I don't know. I don't care where Georgia's ranked. They're the second best team in the country, uh, and they are ranked number two. So they got three top 20 teams on the road, Georgia, Alabama, and Ole Miss. They got Texas A&M, a top five team on a neutral site. They got Texas at home. They got LSU on the road. They got Auburn at home, too. Auburn's ranked right now, too. And so I was like, that, I mean, I don't care how. Sam Pittman could be Vince Lombardi. It, it ain't working out. And so for them to come out, and do what they did on Saturday. And look, I'm not saying they're going to go undefeated. But what I am saying is to continue the momentum from last year at home in front of that crazy crowd in Razorback Stadium. Like, it was unbelievable. And again, it was such a testament to who he is and how he coaches and what kind of guy he is. And they were so physical and they were so tough up front. It was just awesome to watch. And I give this guy so much credit, like I said a minute ago, from the Texas perspective, to physically – I mean, this is a team – Two and ten two years ago. No spring practice last year. Comes in, physically dominates Texas, 471 yards of total offense, over seven yards per rush. The confidence that they play with, and again, it goes back to what I said a minute ago. I think that they realize this guy believes in us, this guy wants to be here, this guy cares about us, and I just I, I can't say enough about what Sam Pittman has done. And I'll just tell you, I, I don't think it stops here. Now, th- this team isn't going 11-1. and one. I don't think they're beating Bama. I don't think they're beating Georgia. Ole Miss is going to create some matchup problems. But you look at the rest of the schedule. I mean, Texas A&M is far from unbeatable after what we saw this weekend in Colorado. Um, You know, Ole Miss will see, again, matchup problems. LSU doesn't look as unbeatable. But all of a sudden, this program, again, is just trending in the right direction. And it is such a testament to Sam Pittman. Incredible win for Arkansas. Biggest win. I mean, Arkansas fans, you would know better than me. But just, I, it's an incredible win, an incredible turnaround. Credit to the pit boss, Sam Pittman. All right, this is what I'm going to do. I want to take one final break. This is what I want to do. One final break. Come back. I do want to talk about my boy Clay Helton. My boy Clay Helton. Woo! You talk about a seat heating up. We're going to come back. We're going to talk Clay Helton. And uh, we'll talk about some other stuff. I will be back momentarily. All right, everybody, I am back. Uh, Good to be back. Good to be back. Final time today. And I want to get to a few different topics here at the end of the show. I want to get to Michigan beating Washington. I want to get to A&M taking care of uh, Colorado late. Wild game there. Iowa State, I'm officially, by the way, I'm officially over Iowa State. I might go on a crazy rant with that Iowa State game. But let's, uh, before we get to all that, let's start with one quick little topic that needs to be addressed. That's your boy, Clay Hill. Because what I will tell you is this, a lot of you may have gone to sleep, you may have been out, you may have been at a bar, you may not have stayed up for USC and Stanford. Well, kicks off at 10.30 Eastern time, a little bit Pac-12 after dark, and there was nothing Pac-12 after darky about it. It wasn't interesting, it wasn't compelling, it wasn't crazy. USC entered as a 17-point favorite and got absolutely destroyed by Stanford. Final score was 42-28, to but if you watch the game, what was crazy was they were actually down as much as 29 points in the fourth quarter before they scored two touchdowns in the final six minutes to make it a quote-unquote more respectable 42-28 to final score. And what I'll just tell you is this. Um, you know, the USC fan base had long turned on Clay Hilton, but... Uh, Saturday night you had multiple prominent alums come out and criticize this current regime, and it's just clear that this is so over. It's not going to work out, and I think we can already start thinking about what's potentially next at USC. Now, in terms of this game itself, again, a microcosm of Clay Helton and USC. 
17-point favorite coming in against a Stanford team that got obliterated in week one by Kansas State. Final score in that one was 24-7. Stanford looks like the freaking, uh, you know, Green Bay Packers coming into, uh, coming into the L.A. Coliseum on Saturday night. They do what they want. They take care of business. They move the ball at will, almost 400 yards of total offense. And you're just sitting, your, sitting there pulling your hair out like, what is USC doing? On top of that, I would say it comes off a week one game for USC. I know most of you didn't watch it. It was on the Pac-12 network. None of you get the Pac-12 network. But USC beat San Jose State 30-7 to in week one. But here's the catch with that game. That game was 13-7 going into the fourth quarter, and USC rallied to make it look more one-sided than it was. And so you have the San Jose State game, which inspires no one coming into the Stanford game. You have the Stanford game, which leaves USC at 1-1 one one with an embarrassing loss. And again, it is just a microcosm for the Clay Helton regime. It's not only that he does not win enough, which is obviously a huge problem. It's not only that he doesn't have USC competing for Pac-12 championships and college football playoff bursts. It is how it all goes down. If you have watched this team, if you have watched this regime, here is basically how a typical Clay Helton season goes. Probably beat somebody crappy week one. Okay, cool, whatever. A lot of teams do that. Then week two, week three, you lose a game that you shouldn't lose. In this case, it was Stanford, but in other years, it's been other teams. But what happens is you lose so many games early that you put yourself so far behind the eight ball that you can't catch up by the end of the year. And his teams actually play pretty well in uh, mid to late October, November, into December. The problem is they've put themselves so far behind early in the season that there is no catching up. And so you fall behind, you lose a couple games, you're already out of the playoff picture, you're probably out of the Pac-12 title picture, and on top of that, it's not just that you lose games, it's how you do it. They come out completely unprepared, they come out completely undisciplined, completely unready to play after months off. You know how Nick Saban, week one, it's like a lock that his team's going to look awesome and destroy somebody? With USC and Clay Hilton, it's the exact opposite. Week one, Week two, week three, they are going to be embarrassed regardless of who the opponent is or what the schedule looks like. They're going to lose a game that they should not. And so when I look at this whole Clay Helton regime as a whole, by the way, I should mention with, with the Stanford game specifically, nine penalties, 111 yards, pick six for Stanford return for a touchdown. I mean, it was just a, a the, the microcosm of the Clay Helton experience, and it's clear that it's over. And the crazy part is I've actually mostly been a Clay Helton defender through the years, okay? I think it's easy to forget the circumstances in which he inherited this program, okay? If you remember what happened, how he took over the program, it was a complete disaster and a complete dumpster fire when he took over for Steve Sarkeesian. I know it's easy to forget now. Sark's the head coach at uh, Texas, had the, uh, the the tour through the, the, the NFL with the Atlanta Falcons, had his run with Nick Saban last year, but... That program was a dumpster fire when Steve Sarkeesian left, and I don't mean to make light of it, all that stuff, but Steve Sarkeesian was drinking on the job. He was showing up too intoxicated, if you will, to even coach games. I know it's easy to forget that part. That happened at USC, and Clay Helton was the guy that had to pick up the pieces. And so I always thought Clay Helton got kind of a bad rap uh, you know, over the first few years because he walked into an impossible situation. And for the most part, he was actually pretty good early. Takes over for Sark, goes 5-4. and four. His first full year, they go 10-3. and three. That's the year they get to the Rose Bowl with Sam Darnold, beat Penn State in the Rose Bowl. 2017, they win the Pac-12, go to the Cotton Bowl, lose to Ohio State. But since Sam Darnold left, what cannot be denied, you know, people had this narrative that Sam Darnold was the one that carried uh, Clay Hilton, and I wasn't sure if I believed it. I think it's pretty indisputable at this point. 
Here is what USC has done since Sam Darnold left in 2017. 2018, they go 5-7. and seven. That was a JT Daniels year, young team, whatever. 2019, they go 8-5. and five. Last year, they go 5-1. and one. This year, they're 1-1. One and one. So just overall, in the grand scheme, that is a 19-14 and 14 overall record since Sam Darnold left, which at a school like USC is unacceptable. Because I do think there are some schools that have a warped and distorted view of how good they can or should be. I don't think USC is one of them, though. USC is built to do what Ohio State is doing in the Big Ten right now and what Clemson is doing in the ACC and what Oklahoma is doing in the Big 12. They have the best recruiting base. They have the biggest boosters. They play in an NFL. Like There is no reason that this team should not be at the top of the Pac-12 competing every single year to go to the college football playoff. Instead, they're 19-14 and 14 since Sam Darnold left campus. And I would say this, that number is even a little bit deceptive because last year they went 5-1 and one in a totally bizarre, fluky COVID season, and there were at least two or three games that they should have lost. Fourth quarter rally against Arizona State, they were down 14 points going into the fourth quarter. Fourth quarter rally against Arizona. Fourth quarter rally against US, UCLA. As much as they were 5-1, and one, they easily could have been like 2-4, and four, or they would have been 2-3 and because they wouldn't have played in the Pac-12 championship game. But again, this is who he is, and at this point, there is no denying it. And the incredible thing is the ability of this guy to avoid getting canned. I mean, this guy, you know, you talk about some guys have bad luck, some guys have no luck at all. This guy's got great luck because he goes 8-5 and five in 2019. And I actually didn't think that they necessarily needed to fire him that year. Um, but he goes 8-5, and five, the fan base wants him gone. And it just so happens that USC is in the process of hiring a new school president because the old school president got booted with all that academics or all the um, admission scandal stuff. OK, so eight and five happens to have a new school president uh, and a new AD. I'm sure the AD wanted to fire him, but he comes in. He has like two weeks to figure everything out. And if you remember, even that year, uh, the season ended and he didn't announce Clay Helton was coming back for another week or two, which said to me very simply, uh, he's not my guy, but I can't find anybody better. Clay Helton says, oh, I'm going to shake up my staff. They're going to do things different, blah, 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 this and that. Then last, then he gets COVID after that, or that, that was after the five and seven season, excuse me. Then he goes eight and five, just good enough. Um, and at that point, you have COVID. And so no matter what happens... First, you have a new school president, a new AD, then COVID happens. Well, now he's officially out of excuses. And again, Saturday was the day that it just felt like this is what it is. This is always what it is going to be, and it is never going to get solved. I thought it was interesting. You know, Matt Leinert, uh, who I'm, you know, I, I know a little bit. I don't want to say I'm friends with him by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, he was kind of commenting on, you know, just how, uh, you know, how, how, how depressing it was to look at the stadium the way that it was. Keyshawn Johnson, who is obviously a very prominent alum host radio on ESPN Radio, this is what he said on Twitter. I'm so pissed. I can no longer fight on for him, period. Embarrassing him, obviously, being Clay Helton. And so it's clear. The fans were gone for a while. The alums have turned on him, and it's over. What will be interesting to see, who they potentially get. I'll just tell you, I'm recording this in the middle of an NFL Sunday. Those, those Jacksonville Jaguars look pretty awful, okay? Uh, I don't think Urban Meyer makes it, uh, you know, the full 15-16 uh, game year, and maybe if they do, uh, I don't know if it's going to be a multiple-year season. So maybe Urban Meyer decides he wants to come back to college football. All this name, image, likeness stuff isn't as bad as he thought it was going to be. Um, you know, 
I don't know. I mean, I heard USC fans saying, we got to go get Lane Kiffin. Would Lane Kiffin come back? I mean, it's obviously a better job than Ole Miss, but I think after he was the way he was treated, I doubt that he would be interested in coming back. You know, Bob Stoops is available. Is that the kind of job that he would be interested in? I'll say this. I saw a couple people mention this. Cliff Kingsbury was the USC offensive coordinator for about a day before he got hired by the Arizona Cardinals. Maybe he makes sense as a candidate, but it's clear that there are people out there that would take this job. I think they would actually get a pretty legitimate head coach, but Clay Helton's not the answer, and it is time for him to go. A couple just other notes I want to get out of here. The show's going long as it always does. First of all, Michigan, I thought, very nice win over Washington. As I'll just say this, Washington stinks. I don't think that is any big secret, but when I do look at Michigan, I'll tell you, you know, one 31 to 10 win. I thought it was just impressive the way that they're really getting after it on defense. You know, last year it was interesting. They had that disastrous year last year, two and four, but their best defensive player, Aiden Hutchinson gets hurt. And he was like unbelievable in this game, just flying all over the field. He had two and a half sacks, two and a half tackles for loss. He looked awesome. And I'll tell you, I think Michigan looks a lot looser to me and I don't know if it's because they came into the year with no expectations they came into the year unranked if it was what I said on last episode the idea that uh, Jim Harbaugh shook up his coaching staff they now have kind of a young energetic staff Don Brown uh, the dinosaur is out he is now the defensive coordinator at Arizona I don't know what it is they look better listen it goes without saying the schedule is going to get much tougher they have to play at Wisconsin here in three weeks They have to play at Nebraska, which won't be easy. We know that'll be a tough road environment at Penn State. And then they close with somebody named Ohio State. So let's pump the brakes. I'm not going to do the whole, you know, Michigan's back. They've got it figured out thing. But I did think they actually looked a lot better than I was expecting coming into this game and frankly coming into this season. Uh, You know, a couple other news and notes. I'll say this with Iowa, Iowa State. First of all, credit to Iowa. Punch uh, Iowa State in the mouth. Uh, Iowa might be the best team in the Big Ten right now. They should be the highest ranked team in the Big Ten after they've beaten back-to-back ranked teams, Indiana and Iowa State. I think they're both a little bit overrated. And with that said, let me say this. Enough with Iowa State, okay? Uh, I'm just going to go on a little mini rant here, so forgive me. I am so over people trying to sell me with Iowa State. Now, look, two things can be true with Iowa State. What Matt Campbell has done there to elevate the talent level of the program, it's incredible. It's impressive. It deserves acknowledgement. At the same time, they're not a contender and stop selling. Like the, la- the last two off-seasons, people sell me that they're a contender. Last year, they lose to Louisiana in week one. This year, they lose. They get destroyed by Iowa, and I'm just done. They're fine. They're a good program. They beat the teams they're supposed to, but people are trying to sell me in the off-season that they're elite. They are not even close to elite. They're not even in the same stratosphere as Georgia, as Alabama, as Oregon this season, as Oklahoma this season. This team stinks. They're overrated. I am so over Iowa State. No more Iowa State talk on this podcast. Uh, A&M survives against Colorado. I think it'll be interesting. As I record here, I don't know that there's any update on Haynes King, their quarterback. Defense looked awesome. I was surprised. You know, I kind of thought Jimbo Fisher abandoned the run game. I think he kind of wanted to prove... you know, he kind of wanted to prove how smart he is and how deep the play. But hey, just run the ball between the tackles, okay? Just run the ball between the tackles. AM, as I said, we have no update on Haynes King as of right now. And I'll tell you this as it comes to AM, um, it's not as though their schedule is going to get significantly easier going forward. And this is a team that I think a lot of people thought had real college football playoff dark horse buzz to them. Defense looked really good last week, but I'm not sold that they're there quite yet. By the way, next four weeks, 
They have Arkansas in a, on a neutral field. They get Bama at home. So by the first, second full weekend of October, by the middle of October, they will have played at uh, Arkansas in Dallas, and they will have played Bama. Those are going to be two two really tough games. And on top of that, of course, you're going to have later in the year, um, you know, Auburn, Ole Miss teams like that. Notre Dame, not going to lie, don't get Peacock Network, so I didn't watch that one. But Notre Dame survives on and on. Kentucky, I thought, again, looked good. I'm telling you, this Will Levis-Wandale Robinson thing, it's real. I think Kentucky, I'm not even kidding. I think they're the second best team in the SEC East ahead of Florida. Florida plays Alabama this weekend. I think they're going to get exposed. Um, They're certainly better than Tennessee, certainly better than South Carolina, certainly better than Vanderbilt. I think they're the second best team in the SEC East, and they have one of the most explosive offenses in the SEC, which is incredible to say with Will Levis. I don't understand how Penn State let him go. I don't understand how they picked Sean Clifford over him, but apparently they did. But Kentucky takes care of business. I think that's really it. The last thing. Oh, Florida State. Nothing to say. You guys saw how Florida State lost. Unbelievable. So I want to get out of here. Fun episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I appreciate you guys listening. You guys have loved these Monday episodes. So thank you so very much for all the support of this show and everything that you guys do. Before we get out of here, I want to remind everybody, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Podcast, iTunes, Spotify, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, again, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Uh, And make sure, by the way, you're following on social media, Aaron underscore Torres, Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Make sure you're checking out Aaron Torres online. Uh, You know, we are, you know, what I want the website to ultimately be, I have a bunch of smart guys working for me and girls too. I want it to be a place that you go two or three times a day, kind of get caught up on what you missed in the world of sports. Uh, and, and, you know, a couple quirky stories as well. I want there to be smart content on there, funny content on there. want you to laugh, want you to have a good time. But, um, you know, it is one of those things where we are still growing the website, still evolving, so it is going to continue to get better. With that said, I'm out of here. It is Sunday afternoon as I record. I'm actually going to the Rams-Bears games tonight. So I hope you guys have a great Monday. I hope I do something crazy. I hope I don't end up in one of those viral stadium videos getting punched in the face. That is all for today. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. Shout out to Urban Meyer who looks like he's going to vomit and quit in week one. I am out of here. Have a good day, party people. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.